Good morning again. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we'll be taking a look at verses 1 through 11 this morning as we continue our celebration of Christmas here at Trinity. We have come through the Advent season, the season of longing and anticipation meant to renew and redirect our own longings for Jesus. And we come once more face to face with our incarnate King, Emmanuel, who is God with us. In the arc of God's redemptive story, we find ourselves in the last days, in the season after the coming of our Savior. Yet, as Mitchell mentioned at the beginning of this Advent season, even though we sit on this side of Christ's coming, we continue in our longing. Things still aren't the way that they were meant to be. And as we survey the world around us, we continue to see war and famine and sickness, and we continue to feel the effects of the fall in our own lives, both in our experiences of suffering and death and in our struggle with sin. But just as Mitchell said, when we set out on this Advent journey together, the good news this morning is that Christ has come. And he is the answer to all your longings. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises. And he's the only Savior who can bring forgiveness and healing and hope. And so this morning we turn to behold our Messiah King in one of the most poetic, concise, and yet thorough confessions of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's that news that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds in Luke 2, that the eternal, omnipotent Son of God has come and just taken the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. For the fullness of time has now come, and God has sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And this peace of salvation that God gives through his Son the Prince of Peace, foretold by the prophet Isaiah, the peace that will come to those whom God is pleased to call to himself. And so as we turn to our passage this morning, in his letter to the Philippian church, Paul wants to encourage the Philippians to live out their lives as ones who have been made citizens of a heavenly colony in light of the peace that God extends. And as we'll see, his encouragement is rooted in the reality of Jesus' first coming and of his promised return. But before we look at our passage this morning, we need to pray for God's help. And so would you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for the great love that you have for us through Jesus Christ and that you've poured out into our hearts by your Spirit. We thank you for the good news of the gospel this morning that you've revealed to us in your word. We know that your word is living and that it has the power to change us. And so we ask that by your spirit, you will soften the hardness of our hearts, open our ears and our eyes, that we may hear what you teach and delight in your ways. In Jesus' glorious name, amen. Would you look with me? at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 
This is God's word for us this morning. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it may surprise you to hear that one of my favorite places in the entire world is at the top of Camelback Mountain in Phoenix, Arizona. And the reason that I could spend countless hours on the peak of Camelback is that because from it, you get this fantastic 360 panoramic view of the entire Salt River Valley, and you can take in the most beautiful sunsets that you've ever seen. Well, our text this morning is a camelback mountain sort of a passage. As I said before, this brief and beautiful text is one of the fullest, most explicit descriptions in the New Testament of the identity of our Redeemer. One pastor calls this Christ hymn in the latter half of our passage a rich Christological feast. And in short, Paul lays out the gospel for the Philippians, and for us in full panoramic view. But while he's certainly concerned with a right view of who Jesus is, of right doctrine, Paul's convinced that to live in the truth of who Christ is means more than having our theology right. It means embodying its implications in lives of graciousness and humility. And so Paul's desire is that our daily lives should match the worth of the gospel. And so I'd like us to see three things in the passage this morning. First, we'll skip down to verses 5 through 8 to see the humility of the king. And then we'll see in verses 9 through 11 the exaltation of the king. And then we'll jump back to the beginning of our passage in verses 1 through 4 to see the character of of the king's people. And so first, the humility of the king. Verses five through eight say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient the point of death, 
even death on a cross. To begin to glimpse the wonder of Jesus' humility, of his condescension, we need to know the divine dignity and glory that forever characterized the one who became a human baby in Bethlehem. The one who was given the name Jesus because his mission on earth would be to save his people from their sins. You see, the eternal son of God existed eternally, not only before Bethlehem, but before the creation of the universe itself. Verse 6 tells us that he was in the form of God, which is best interpreted against the background of the glory of God. It doesn't simply refer to Jesus' eternal external appearance, but it pictures the eternally existent Christ as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews 1, we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus himself in John 17 says, And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This glory is the very throne from which the Son with the Father and the Spirit ruled from eternity's past. Yet, we read in the second half of verse 6 that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This gets at the heart of what Paul refers to here as the mind of Christ. Not that he was not equal with God. For as we've confessed this morning, he's of one substance with the Father, equal in power and glory, as the Catechism says. But the divine Son did not, gra- did not regard his equality with the Father as something to be grasped, but instead as a platform for self sacrificial giving. This was the mind of Christ. He looked at himself and at the Father and at us, and for obedience sake and for sinner's sake, he held nothing back. Paul says he emptied himself, not from his divine nature, but into a new, and had it not been revealed to us in Scripture, an unimaginable state. You know, we tend to characterize Jesus' birth as this cute little scene on a mantle or on a sideboard. The somehow impeccably cleaned and well-swaddled baby Jesus laying on bright yellow straw with twinkling light from a star coming down. Some sort of picture from a Silent Night storybook. Mitchell mentioned Andrew Peterson's album a few weeks ago, Behold the Lamb of God. Another song on that album called, is called Labor of Love, and it infers a more probable version of Jesus' birth story. Jill Phillips sings, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night and on the streets of David's town. And the stable wasn't clean, and the cobblestones were cold, 
And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But for the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. You see, in this beautiful tension of humble, loving condescension, Jesus' arrival in his birth sets the stage for life for a life of humble serving, in which Paul says he took the form not of a noble prince, but of a lowly servant. The pinnacle of which was another blood-ridden night when he died an excruciating and humiliating death on the cross at Calvary. Though he was eternally and fully God, with all the divine rights, privileges, and attributes, Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, even unto death. And he did all this, Paul reminds us earlier in Romans, while we were yet sinners. For the sake of lost sinners, that we might have the hope of reconciling peace with God and of eternal life with him. And as the Lamb of God, by his blood, he ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. But the story doesn't stop with Christ's death. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him. And so let's turn to look at the exaltation of the king. Verses 9 through 11 say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One pastor put it this way. He said, God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is the ultimately loving act. For him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When he does all things for the praise of his glory, he preserves for us and offers to us the only thing in all the world which can satisfy our longings. God the Son humbled himself in the incarnation, not as an end in itself, but in order to be exalted above all else, thereby achieving our highest good. He didn't achieve an exalted state that he lacked prior to the incarnation, for as God, he has always been the most exalted one. But in pursuing the way of humiliation for his people, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, gained as a gift the exaltation that was his by nature, giving no reason to doubt the glory of the God-man. You see, Christ's exaltation validates the sufficiency of his sacrificial obedience. In his resurrection, by, the over, by overcoming death and the grave, Christ conquered Satan, sin, and death. By Christ's resurrection, we too have been raised to new life. Jesus' resurrection is a sure pledge of our own resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the elect. And Christ is the firstborn from the dead that assures that we will all be raised on the last day. In his ascension, we have a mediator who makes constant intercession for us. He grants us a sure pledge of our presence and glory 
from where he sends his spirit to us that we might seek the things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And all this was granted to the Son by the Father that he might be glorified. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of the Father. So how should you respond to Christ's exaltation and enthronement? Jesus continues to lay claim to the hearts and minds of the people that cover the globe. And he does so through a strategy that seems surprisingly fragile, not through force of arms, but through the message of his cross, the instrument of his execution and the symbol of shameful weakness carried outward to the nations through the proclamation of his people and inward into human hearts through his Holy Spirit. Maybe you've been striving to win the blessing of other lords, financial security or others' approval, romantic love, academic achievement. If that's true of you this morning, hear this plea. No other lord but Jesus can deliver on his promises. No other lord but King Jesus deserves your unquestioning allegiance. His resurrection from the dead turned human history and cosmic history in a new direction, which is leading to the day when every knee will humbly bow and every tongue express devotion to the living Lord. Won't you call on him today? If you have come to Jesus as your Savior and King, then Paul says that these things are true. The triune creator God of the universe has poured out his manifold grace on us in encouragement, love, comfort, partnership, and tender compassion. And since we've received all these blessings in Christ and from Christ, then we're responsible to live to Christ and for Christ. Has all that Christ has done and become become made any significant impact on your life? Has it impacted your character? Has it made you humble-minded? That brings us to our final point, which is the character of the king's people. Jumping back up to verse 1, we read, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Throughout his letter, Paul's exhorting the Philippians to display Values and behavior that reflect the city that defines our identity and gives us significance. To embody character that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, as Paul says, who has given us citizenship in heaven, where he sits enthroned as king and from where he will return. Many of you will have seen 
a video that instantaneously went viral on social media platforms a few weeks ago in which Stephen Foster, the rector at St. Aldate's Church in Oxford, England, describes his experiences of coming to love the church. In the video, he says, if I'm honest, I never really liked the church. I didn't even like Christians that much. I used to think of it like a package deal where there are some bits that you like, namely Jesus, and some bits that you don't like, namely the church and Christians. And I used to find that a bit annoying, and I never really enjoyed going to church. And then one day, as I was in the back of our church in East London, and someone said to me, we need help to run the coffee team. I was working like 70 or 80 hours a week And I thought to myself, I've got a job. I I don't need another job to run the church coffee team. But I couldn't think of what to say. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. And though instantly I thought to myself, why did I do that? I turned up the next week trying to get the cups set up and get the coffee right. And as I handed these cups to people, something began to change in me. I found myself, as I handed coffee to these people, growing in love for them. I thought, these people are amazing. This is an extraordinarily diverse community that's been gathered from across the area. This is a miracle. And even people that I found a little frustrating and complicated, as I handed them their coffee, I kind of grew in love for them, and I kind of basically fell in love with the church. I went back to the person who asked me to do it, and I said, we need new coffee machines. We need better beans. We need better mugs. These are amazing people. I want this to be the best coffee they've ever gotten. And I got more passionate, and I started building a team to serve coffee on Sunday morning. And I sometimes say that making coffee changed my life because I fell in love with the Church of Jesus Christ. I didn't realize why it was special. I didn't realize why it mattered. And as I made coffee for people, I suddenly realized, oh, the church is like the bride of Jesus Christ. It's like the thing he gave himself for. The church is God's plan for the salvation of the world. And God is going to build his church and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes, it messes up. Yes, it makes mistakes. You'll never find a perfect church. But it's a beautiful thing. And I thought, that's what I want to spend my life building. Brothers and sisters, our witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is borne up by our love for one another and humility in light of the great love that has been given to us and shed abroad in our hearts. In the text this morning, Paul is most concerned about the self-centeredness that seeks credit and praise for what one has achieved. And yet, the life of the Savior shows that self-emptying is the route to real glory, whereas self-centered ambition yields only empty glory. The culture says that happiness comes to those who pursue it for themselves at all costs, no matter who else gets hurt or left behind in the hunt. But for Paul, 
his personal escape from the miseries of being marginalized and abused by a hostile world did not matter so much when compared to the reputation of Christ and the needs of the church. The gracious and surprising descent of the Lord of glory to the shame of the cross has upended the whole scale of social values. And those who have been rescued from sin and death by the servitude of God's son have the honor of expressing his lowliness in self-service to others. Christian unity by the power of the spirit through our union with Christ himself is our greatest testimony on the validity of the life-transforming gospel that we proclaim. This others-embracing, others-serving mindset of Christ is so unnatural to our self-preserving instincts. Yet when God's grace grasps us deeply, it begins to develop into our deepest, strongest desire. We begin to care for all our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same passionate intensity that we so automatically and easily lavish on our own comforts and concerns. We put others' needs before our own. And so what does this look like? It looks like loving each other through selfless service, relinquishing our rights when necessary. Caring compassionately for brothers and sisters with whom we have differences. In a congregation the size of Trinity, there's no doubt differences of opinion on preferences and areas that are not essential to the gospel. It means to humbly honor each other. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll never or should never have conflict with one another, but it does mean that grounded in the truth of the gospel, the affection that believers have for one another stabilizes our relationships with each other so that we can address our differences in patience and humility and love. When you're tempted to throw your weight around, to pull rank in order to get your way, pause, ponder the wonder of the mind of Christ, the mind that is becoming yours as you rest in him, the mind that exhibits the incomparable glory of God, not in self-seeking grasping, but in self-sacrificing giving. The gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace with God. So unity belongs to the very essence of the Christian life. For it is the way in which Christians display outwardly what the gospel is and means to us. How can non-Christians be convinced that Christ reconciles us to God if we're not reconciled to each other? The only way to have our hearts changed in this way is to have our hearts overwhelmed with wonder at the fact that we have received such unnatural, supernatural, selfless love from the creator of the universe. And so we beg our Savior to turn our hearts inside out, to treasure others as more important than ourselves, to care about their needs even more than we care for ourselves, to fight for unity by cultivating the humility that we see in Jesus, the King who stooped to serve us and to bring us peace. So glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Would you all pray with me?
Father, we do thank you this morning for that peace, the peace that was given to us only by the suffering, the excruciating death of your Son, who made atonement for our sins that we might be reconciled to you. Grant us that same peace this morning with each other, that we might be witnesses of your great love for us to a watching world who so desperately needs the good news of your gospel. We pray all this in your Son's name this morning. Amen.